You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, well, welcome. Welcome to week, are we on week five already? Still week five? Yeah, I know, I just saw that, but I'm just questioning myself. I think it's only four, yeah. I thought we were ahead of ourselves there. Uh, Yes, we're on week four, but in your notes it says week five. Uh, And uh, we are carrying on in our journey through reshape, how the reality of Jesus reshapes all of reality. And tonight, one of the things, one of the many things we're going to be doing tonight, and when I was looking at my notes, I was like, what am I thinking? What was I thinking? Because we are, tonight, we're just going to cover the Holy Spirit, the church, heaven, and hell. That's it. And their implications. What's that? Oh, sorry, and purgatory. No. <laughs> we will, yeah, so I don't know what I was thinking, but I thought it'd be good to start off with a prayer. And uh, it's a prayer in reflection of uh, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And it's an old Puritan prayer, and nobody prays like the Puritans, I find. So let's pray together. O Holy Spirit, as the sun is full of light, the ocean full of water, heaven full of glory, so may our heart be full of thee. Vain are all divine purposes of love, and the redemption wrought by Jesus. Except thou work within, regenerating by thy spirit, by thy power, giving us eyes to see Jesus, showing us the realities of the unseen world. Give us thyself without measure, as an unimpaired fountain, as inexhaustible riches. We bewail our coldness, poverty, emptiness, imperfect vision, languid service, prayerless prayers praiseless praises. Suffer us not to grieve or resist thee. And so come as power to expel every rebel lust to reign supreme and keep us thine. Come as teacher, leading us into all truth, filling us with all understanding. Come as love, that we may adore the Father and love him as our all. Come as joy to dwell in us, to move in us, to animate us. Come as light, illuminating the scripture, molding us in its laws. Come as sanctifier, body, soul, and spirit, holy thine. Come as helper with strength to bless and keep, directing our every step. Come as beautifier, bringing order out of confusion, loveliness out of chaos. Magnify to us your glory by being magnified in us and make us redolent of thy fragrance. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, man, good stuff. So, any, um, I've talked to a few of you this week. Any stories that you've noticed this week? Anything in the news uh, that uh, has caught your attention? 
Lisa, you pointed on, uh, uh, it was like a Freedom 55 kind of thing, Sun, sun Life, right? And about, um, about uh, the, the, uh, our future. What, what was the byline for Sun Life? We'll get you there. We'll get you there, yes. We'll get you, so the question is where? Yeah, we'll get you, what? What is the chief end of man to retire at 55 and enjoy it forever, right? Yeah. Um, there's another great article, boy, you were working hard. The one on, uh, on the fragmenting of evangelicalism, the fragmenting of the church today, and the incredible amount of conflict and division in the church. And it's an interesting kind of conflict because it's not conflict so much over theology and doctrine it's conflict over morals and ethics and what is right which is which is a little bit different than how conflicts in the church have been played out over history not entirely different but i think it it, it is quite quite unique um, lots of interesting stories and so just as a reminder, we're living in a world of competing stories. Lots of stories out there trying to sell us something about the nature of reality. And these, these stories are trying to answer some key questions. What are these questions? Who am I? Why do I exist? What is good? What is life all about? How do I understand the world? What is the problem with this world? And what is the solution? And so tonight, <laughs> I thought we'd tackle a few things. So we're going to look at the person of the Holy Spirit, the church, and the end of all things, and their implications. I know, that's a lot. But what we're not doing, just so you know, we're not doing actually a kind of a systematic explanation of the third person of the Trinity. We're not doing so much theology. We're just talking about what Christians believe and their implications, okay? Um, so the big idea is how we see the church, how we see the Holy Spirit, how we see the end, reshape how we answer these questions. For example, if you believe that when you die, that's it, you're done. There's no, there's no more life. You're just food for worms then how does that affect what we should do in life? Actually, what does it, yeah, what does it say about whether or not we live a good life, a moral life? It doesn't matter. I mean, that could be one conclusion you can come to, is that it does not matter how you live or what you do because in the end there's really no consequences yeah so phoebe was saying that she was reading a lot this week about people saying that you know in a billion years nobody will even know you existed and so whatever you do doesn't really matter so that perspective <laughs> i wouldn't even go a billion years you can go two generations and you know a little dose of ecclesiastes one right is that you know nobody's gonna remember my kids i think will remember me lord willing if i have grandchildren they'll remember me 
chances are my great-grandchildren will not remember me. And that's not that long away, right? That's not, that down, that's not billions of years, right? And so if this is where we're putting our hope and our, our, our desire, then, then there's consequences. So how you see the end actually does affect how you live now. And we're going to explore that tonight. But we're going to begin with the Holy Spirit. Uh, it tells you that all your joy is now even to the point of selfishness because it doesn't matter in the end. Yes, that's right, Lord. Lord. Yeah, do whatever makes me happy in that case. Um, let's begin with the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the Holy Spirit, here's an understatement, is quite important. One, he's God, so that makes him quite important. Uh, we exist because of him, that makes him quite important. But in light of our conversation about the story of all stories, the Christian truth, the Holy Spirit is so important. Why? Well, because the Holy Spirit is the one who draws us into the story. And my favorite um, picture of this is, um, of course, it's C.S. Lewis, it's mandatory. Uh, but in the voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's this scene at the beginning with two kids, Edmund and Lucy, they're staying at their cousin, their rotten cousin Eustace's house, and Eustace peeks in on them and he kind of gives them a hard time. And he, and he mocks them because Lucy is looking at a painting on a wall. And Lucy really likes the painting. And he's saying, oh, I think it's a rotten painting. Um, but the painting is that of, of, of an ancient ship. And Lucy's like, no, I, I really like that. And before you know it, while, while um, Eustace was making fun of it, they say, you know, it almost looks like the waves are moving. And sure enough, the waves are moving. And they can smell the sea breeze and all sorts of things. And next thing you know, it's, it's animated. And not only is it animated, but before they know it, what happens? Yeah, all three of them get sucked into it, into the story, into the ship, into the ocean, and into this adventure. And so it's kind of that picture that we go from, with, without factoring in the Holy Spirit, we can look at the story of the Bible and say, that's a nice story there. But because of the Holy Spirit, we are swept into the story that God is writing. It's absolutely key. I remember Eugene Peterson telling his grandchildren a story about trolls, and, kept, and, they, and they loved his stories of trolls. And one of his granddaughters said to him, said, tell it, tell it again, Grandpa, but this time put me in the story. And that's what happens. We are brought into the story. We're no longer staring at a wonderful story that's out there, but we've been brought into God's story that he is writing. And the key event in all this is the story of Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we read these words. Um, I thought I had to say, oh, here we go. In Acts chapter 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, the disciples were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is a key event. And in the, in, in, in the act of Pentecost, we witness two movements. Actually, in, in the book of Acts, we see two uh, movements right at the beginning. 
One is the ascension of Jesus. And Jesus does tell the disciples, hey, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for me to go. What does he say? He says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage. You may not realize this. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And the ascension of Jesus is key. And it sets up the giving of the Holy Spirit, which is actually what's behind the creation of the church. Right? And so what happens with the giving of the Holy Spirit is God's way, God's, God's law, God's way of, uh, of, of doing things goes from being out there that we read but actually impressed into our hearts. That's what we read about in, in the prophecy in Jeremiah 31. Rather than being out there, it becomes engraved in our hearts. God's empowering presence comes within us. And the Holy Spirit teaches us and counsels us and comforts us and encourages us. But then it's not just about, okay, I've received God's very presence inside myself, and that's really awesome. I can feel his love, I can feel his presence, I can feel his comfort, I can feel his guidance. The whole point of God's very presence entering into us is for you and I to carry out the promise. Right? That all the nations of the world would be blessed and so we have received god's holy spirit but not just for that we can kind of mystically reflect upon but we are when we receive the holy spirit we're brought into god's great mission for this world to the nations and we are to be faithful presence to wherever we speak and that's the other thing about the holy spirit it's the very presence of jesus in our lives and so how we live our lives as we allow the Holy Spirit to work through us creates in us a, an aroma. And that's where it says in 2 Corinthians. An aroma of Christ. And that when people see you, if you keep in step with the Spirit, they experience the presence of Jesus in you. And this will either draw you to our life, towards life, or as Paul says, or it's an aroma of death, meaning I don't want anything to do with it. How many people in, how many of you, how many of you, when you came to faith or when you, you know, had an experience where you really grew in faith, how, how many of you experienced someone who you would describe as having the aroma of Christ in them? Jean, yeah, Sharon. Anybody have that experience? Yeah, I mean, I came to faith through a, a fellow that I knew uh, down in the States. Oh, I didn't know him in the States. I knew him in China. Um, but he, was, he, he had the aroma of Christ. And that aroma was something that I, I didn't like. I didn't want to have anything to do with. I hated it. But towards the end, it was the aroma that drew me to the reality of Jesus. The way he carried himself. The way he represented Jesus and how he lived I shared the story before, but I, there was a time when I lived in China where I had to get out of town quickly. I had to leave the country very quickly, and I was in a little bit of trouble. Um, and so I had to get to Hong Kong because I was still British. And I had no money because Chinese money didn't convert to foreign currency back then. 
And so I was in a real dilemma. And this guy who had no money gave me $300. And I'm like, who does that? And that was the beginning. It's like, okay, this, there's something different about this person. And it's a work of the Spirit in them. I remember, I, I think I shared this before, but when I, when I came to faith, you know, I, I heavy drinker, heavy smoker, did drip my share of drugs, I, I, you know, living not a very good life. And when I came to faith, when I became a Christian, many of the things that I, I, I took for granted, I didn't feel comfortable doing. Now, why? I, I, hadn't, I didn't know the Bible. I hardly even read the Bible. I just, just started reading the Bible. But I, there were some things that I was doing that I started thinking, huh, I probably shouldn't be doing this. And I remember one person asking me, why are you not doing this? I'm like, I don't know. And I really didn't. It's just, I just don't think it's right to do this. And uh, the person got really mad. They say, you have no reason. I'm like, I know I don't. But it was a work of the Spirit working in my life. Giving me a taste for things that I'd never thought of before. There's no other reason, because it's not like I knew anything. Again, I only knew two books in the Bible, John and Genesis, because of the rock group Genesis, my brother's John. Um, that's all I knew. I didn't, I didn't know anything about the Bible. But my affections began to change. As a work of the Spirit. And so it's, it's the presence of God in us that transforms us. There were new creations in Christ. Thanks, Natalia. That's true. And we've been gifted. We've been gifted spiritual gifts. And so the, the vision of the Christian life is what? I think this is really helpful. And uh, Denise and uh, you and I chat about this quite, quite often. Is, is, is the, the, the vision of the Christian life is to be a contemplative in action. Contemplative means we have to be attentive to the work of the Spirit in our life, but not just so we can be off on our own, but so that we can be brought back into the mission of God. We are withdrawn in order to re-engage. And so the call of the Christian life is to keep in step with the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. And the way we live out this Christian life, this new creation, Natalia, as you put it, as Paul puts it, <laughs> uh, to live this out is, is, this is what it means to be the church. When we do this together, this is what it means to be the church. So let me ask you this question. Uh, I'm going to have you guys put it on, on, on the chat. Just write as many things as you come up with. You guys talk among yourselves just, just for a moment, just for a moment. What makes a people group a church? What makes something a church? Go. Just talk among yourselves just for a moment. Come up with as many things that makes people a church. Okay, so what, uh, what makes a church a church? Some people said, you know, if you go to a building, that makes a church. Uh, gathering of two or three believers. Yeah, and Jesus Christ is the head. What so, back to the early church. We're told to gather together, to worship, to pray. Gather, worship, pray. And then be equipped to be out in community. So, so teaching, and teaching and service. Ah, that's good. That's Not quite a, being a fleet. 
Not being a clique, yes. I think you can say we're better than a clique. Ah, so sacraments, so and worship. Okay, okay, that add, that adds something. So, so a sacramental side of things as well. So, the how many sacraments would you prefer? Well, I mean, most of these. <laughs> Philip just said seven. I, no, no, <laughs> I saw two. <laughs> yeah, so two. So baptism. Oh, marriage. Okay, yeah, and communion. Okay, what else? Being a family, okay. Being a family, but not necessarily being related to each other. No, yeah. Sorry, are we talking about capital leave it to you. Okay, cool. So, what do you think? Can you think of anything else? <laughs> no. Well, let me ask you this, Eve. Like, so you oversee our youth ministry. So, when our youth gather on Thursday night, just in and of themselves that demographic when they're together is that could that in itself be church okay explain why do you think it's not a health it could not be a healthy church i agree by the way but i want to know why <laughs> Yes. So leadership and eldership, that's interesting. So, because we're, we're adding a few things. I don't know if you've noticed, right? We talked about sacraments. We talked about eldership, which does have a sense of authority, that there needs to be authority in the church, which is interesting. I think we were talking about like, the difference between like, a small group meeting and a church, Capital C Church. Just like a body of believers So, okay, so Capital C Church could be any group of believers gathered together because in some countries they, I'm just for, for these guys' sake, or some, in some countries you can't necessarily practice the sacraments, or maybe you can, um, but you can't maybe do some other things, right? That's good. It's, a, it's an important question because often what I hear happening is uh, from people saying, you know what, I'm done with church. I'm done with church when I'm with my small group and we get together each week, we pray together, we worship, we do some stuff, and you know what, that's church. And that's a big question. Is that sufficient to be church? There's a lot of... Uh,
Right. So in a small group, they would say, as you gather together, it's perfectly fine to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a small group. Yeah. Yeah. And that, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the question is, the, I know, I mean, the, the, these questions are really important because, and some people come on different sides of the fence on this one, because a lot of people will say, you know, my small group, that that's church. I don't need to gather, you know, I'm done with the whole institution of the church. It's just about people, isn't it? And I'm like, yes, it is. But I'm always leery because it's really easy to hang out with people you like and do church. There's something supernatural about hanging around with people that but for the grace of God you wouldn't want to have anything to do with. Right? There's something about being in a community where, yeah, people rub you the wrong way. I love C.S. Lewis again in, in the Screwtape Letters where the new Christian, he goes to church and he says, don't let him think about, you know, the fact that we're all sinners saved by grace. Have them look at, you know, the greasy butcher and the greasy complexion and, or this other person that you know is a so-and-so kind of person and, you know, just kind of deconstruct the church because these people are all sinners. But the reality is, the church should be uncomfortable because you're with people that are very different from yourself that's why it's not a club it's not the lions club it's not kiwanis it's a gathering of saved sinners who are now saints um, who have to learn how to get along and love one another and and the temptation is to create little enclaves and say this is church and they're just with the people i like Nobody would say that, but often that's the case. Anyhow. Yeah. <laughs> well, we know how prayer can be used as gossip. That's for sure. Um, that's for sure. I'm just trying to make sure I'm not missing a. Um, well, I mean, there's some biblical images in of um, of the church. We we're not going to go into a lot of detail, but let's just look at a few of them. And tell me, as we look at them, which one resonates with you? The one image that we come across is that we are the people of God. So as a people of God, we belong to him. So there's a sense of belonging. We are the body of Christ. And so there's a, you think about a body and a head, that there's an intimate connection with the head. So Jesus is our head. There's union with Christ. So I think when we talk about the body of Christ, the emphasis is union with Christ. The bride of Christ emphasizes the love 
that love that we have received from Jesus, but also the love that we are to present to one another in the church. We are the building of God. And so the building of God in the Old Testament, you think about the tabernacle and the temple, these are places where God's presence is found. And so the church, when people walk into the church, there needs to be a sense of there's something different about this place. In the same way that Paul uses the image of temple for our own bodies. And when people encounter you, they need to say there's something different about this person. So Lisa's talking about the reverence that's been lost in the church. Yeah. Well, it's a tough one because, yeah, because as a church, we want, we want people to be welcome, and yet this, there's something holy. I think there's something holy about place. So I don't think it's just a matter. It could be, you know, it could be a, you know, four four walls and a roof and just slap it together. It doesn't matter. It's, but I think there's something sacred about space. And so I guess what I'm saying is I don't, dis- I don't disagree with you. I agree with you. <laughs> um, because, but I think you have to walk that line because the nature of the church, we also know, is you have the visible and invisible church. And Phoebe, you were touch- touching on that. And so you have people who are genuine followers of Jesus Christ, and then there's people who are just inquirers. We don't know what will happen. And so as a church, what we want to do is we want to invite as many people to Jesus as possible. And there may be some things we need to do in order for so people don't feel excluded uh, right from the get-go. And yet at the same time, we need to balance that with the sense of reverence. I think it's a line that can be walked. And I think in our church, you know, we stand, and this is Pastor Mark's legacy, I mean, we stand to read God's word. There's a sense of respect and sacredness there. Um, and yet we're also a church that says, you know, Look, you just come as you are, right? We don't have dress codes, and we don't wear a suit and tie. Or... What's that? Yeah. <laughs> the other image is a picture of family, right? The other is the family of God. And so this implies uh, intimate relationship, relationship um, with God as father, but also relationship with one another as brothers and sisters. Yikes. Um, but you think about families, a lot of families fight. <laughs> families need to forgive families are messy every family has that odd duck and if you don't know who the odd duck is in your family you're it yeah um, and the other image is uh, the flock of God the picture of the flock and you think of sheep is a sense of we're dependent upon God um, that he protects us we need protection And finally, the vineyard of God, where we are fruitful, but we also abide closely to Jesus. Of those images, Laura, you like the bride of Christ. You love that idea. Okay. Um, What what image of the church resonates with you? Do I have those in your notes? Yeah. Is there one that particularly resonates with you? 
body. Oh, okay. Why the body, Mike, since you're back there? <laughs> nice try. <laughs> Right, so the diversity in the body, but working together. Yeah, I love that. That's very good. Good. The flock. Why do you like the flock? That is so good. So to keep the animals in line, even though they don't realize it's it's, it's in their own good. You've probably seen. Have you seen the? Um, it's on YouTube. Uh, about the sheep that would get stuck in this hole. Have you seen that? And it's so funny, but it's so true. And the farmer is pulling the sheep out of this ditch and finally gets the sheep out of the ditch. Hey! T -t -t Boom! Right back in. I thought, oh, that's a metaphor for the church there, right? You know, we just help people get out of a mess and they turn around and end up in a mess. Yeah, that's good. And also, the image of protection. Okay? I think that's also an important one. Good. All ages, diversity. And that was what I was getting at with Eve. Because sometimes people say, I like church. And if I, and the thing is, the reality is, I could build a big church of guys in their mid 50s who like 80s rock music. Right? I got two guys right there who's going to join. I know, yeah. We're like, we're, it's, it's starting already, right? Um, but is that the church? If everybody is kind of like you, is that really the church? And so I, I agree with the whole demographics. I think part of the church, you need to have people from all different ages, all different backgrounds together that, again, but for the grace of God, would not have anything to do with each other. It's a supernatural community, right? So... Last couple things about the church is that it's one. We are supposed to be united. We have one head, one, one Lord. Uh, the reality is the church is increasingly fragmented. The evangelical church is more split than I think it's... I should be, it's been split before. <laughs> Uh, but it's, it is really struggling right now. Especially, I'll talk not around the world, but the North American evangelical church. And there's reasons for that. There's a reason why churches that you see today are fighting like crazy and are splintering. Do you want to know why? I'll tell you next week. <laughs> now, because there is a reason why. And it's in the very nature of evangelicalism, how it's formed, that actually sets the stage for what we're seeing now. And so we're going to touch on that next week when I kind of explore how we got to now. But it's really interesting, I think. Yeah. Um, so we're one church. We're to be a holy church set apart for a purpose. We're to be Catholic, meaning the whole, right? We are to we belong to one another. And what that means, again, is a reminder that there's no room for a me and Jesus approach. You know what? The other thing, because we're a holy, we're we are we are a, to be a holy people set apart. What that means, among many things, is that 
there's no room for someone to say, I really love Jesus. But I, I want to live my life this way. I talk to people all the time and says, you know, I'm doing this, this, and this. And they're all behaviors that are very incongruent with the Christian life. And I'll say, how can you do that? Well, and they'll say, no, 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 you need to know. I love Jesus. I really do. But I, this is what some things that I'm doing. But I still love Jesus. But to love Jesus means to what? To follow him. And so there's no room for, for you and I to, to love Jesus without actually following him. But it's interesting how many times I'm hearing that now from people say, look, I love Jesus, but I just want to do my own thing. Like, they don't go together. Because part of being in the church is to be set apart, to be holy. We're to be apostolic. What's that? Well, the older brother is in trouble. Um, yeah, yeah. But the younger son would have been toast if he hadn't turned around. And, and that was the consequence of his decisions that he made. So we are to avoid ju being judgmental. But that, but you don't... Yeah. We are not to be judgmental, but that does not mean we do not judge. And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking do not judge is the same as do not be judgmental. Judgmental means I close the book on somebody, saying you're going to hell in a handbasket. No, we don't close the book because if we close the book on people, my, this book would have been closed a long time ago because nobody would have seen me coming to faith in Jesus. So we don't close the book on someone. We don't write somebody off. But part of training in the Christian life is to judge rightly. And we need to be able to judge rightly. So if you, let me use an, an example of, if somebody is a pedophile and seems to be getting away with it, I can say to that person, what you are doing is wrong. And that's a judgment. And that's okay. And everybody actually believes that. But what we don't do is we don't close the book on someone. And that's what it means to be judgmental. And the older brother is doing that. He's just like, all these years I've done everything and you've given me nothing. And this son of yours, not this brother of mine, this son of yours has, you know, blows all the money, comes back and you receive him. What's going on? And the one where Christ's parable of the woman caught in the Yeah. It is. And again, though, Jesus says to her, you know, well, he says to everyone, you know, those with, uh, who are without sin cast the first stone. Nobody casts a stone. She goes, what happened? He goes, yeah. And he, and he says, nor do I, I don't condemn you. But then what does he say to her just before she leaves? Go and sin no more. So there's still a judgment in what she was doing. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. So we're to be apostolic, we're to be missional. And we are to be a signpost of God's presence and his reality. And so part of our of being the church, we need to recognize that we're part of something much bigger. Something that started, on, started before we came on the scene and will carry on after we leave the scene and that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that went before us. 
So we don't have to make it up. Sometimes as a church, it's like, how shall we be the church? I tell you guys this, that uh, some, I'm always under pressure uh, to, um, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. I'm always under pressure. People come up to me and say, you know, you need, what you need to do, David, is ask the people what they want. What do people want? In this church, where are the needs? Where are the desires? And my response is, I don't care. Because if I go, if I design ministry simply according to my needs, well, I'll make it pretty easy. But if I design ministry and teaching in accordance to what the church has taught for 2,000 years, then I think I'm in good company. And so what we do is we, we, we pass on what we receive. And we're part of a bigger picture that precedes us, will carry on after us. We're part of this big cloud of witnesses. And we draw from history in order to know what to teach today, in order to point for tomorrow. We don't have to make this stuff up. There's lots of good teaching. Now, we need to contextualize it. We need to use Zoom and different things like that. But, but you know, what I'm teaching you is not something new. It's being passed on from generation to generation, right? One of the things we need to uh, teach, and, and part of what it means to be the church, is we need to be able to talk about the implications of how we live our lives. So part of sharing the gospel, being missional, is to share the truth of Jesus. But to share the truth of Jesus, we also need to share where our life will end up if we do not bow to, the, to Jesus. And that shifts gear to our fun conversation on heaven and hell. <laughs> How's that for a segue? Um, Yeah, that's good, Lori. Yeah. Um, the questions of heaven and hell. Let's spend a few moments talking about that. Um, let me just ask you very quickly. What are the biggest... Uh, I'm not saying I'm going to answer them. Uh, but what are the biggest questions you have about heaven and hell? Go. Actually, just talk among yourselves. You guys put them up on, on, onto, the, uh, onto the thing. I'll pause it here. All right. So... I probably shouldn't have asked this question because I looked at just the ones on the chat line. I'm like, oh man. Oh, where will you be? Who goes? Who doesn't? Is heaven just another dimension? Where is heaven? Uh, are we all the same? How old are we? Can we recognize each other? Will we not have any memory from when we were back on? My goodness, they're hard questions. What do you guys got? All those plus 20 more. Plus 20 more. All right. Any more? Andrew, are we going to see Jesus in all of his glory? Is it going to be an all-at-once thing, or is it gradual? Yeah, because it's no longer going to be like, I told you myself and just die, kind of thing, because Yeah. Oh my 
Right. Is there going to be anything new? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, though we, we don't become God. No. We don't become God. But uh, we will know as we are known, yeah. Will we be bored in heaven? One of my favorite cartoons is these uh, two men with wings with harps on a cloud. And they say, I thought hell would be less ironic. <laughs> because hell is them on a cloud with harps and a... <laughs> anyhow, had to see it. Will we still be, is there work in heaven? Are there books in heaven? Yeah, yeah. Very good. I've often heard people say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, why this or why that, for some reasoning of things that happen in their life. But I have no idea, but let's say there's 2 billion people in heaven. It might be 10,000 years before I get a chance to You'll get a number, right? <laughs> a really long number. Well, and then, yeah, and, and will, will we want those questions answered? Or will he automatically know the answer? Or will we know? Yeah, I don't, yeah. Okay, so these are like really good questions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, very good. I'm going to segue off that because that's really good. Because a lot of times when people die, they say, well, at least he's in a better place. So let's segue into that. 94% um, of people, of Americans, believe in heaven. 70% think they have a good shot at getting there. Um, a good percentage of people who believe in heaven actually do not believe in God. This is just statistically. The prevailing view in North America is that regardless of whether or not, regardless of your religion, regardless of whether or not you believe in God, when one dies, one's in a better place. One is in heaven. After 9-11, a reporter said, heaven has, some, ha, heaven has some fire department now because of all the firefighters that died. So the assumption is every firefighter that died at 9-11 is in heaven. Is that true? Well, we'll come back to this. I actually want to begin with hell. Because hell's a tough one. And hell is something that we seldom talk about. We seldom talk about, about uh, hell. Um, hell gets less press than heaven. So, and one of the questions is, you know, what, what is hell? What is hell? And Hell is described in different ways. Hell is fire, the lake of fire. We read about that, right, in Revelation 20. Uh, Jonathan Edwards describes hell as that world of misery, that lake of burning, burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. 
a dreadful pit of glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide, gaping mouth open, and you have nothing to stand on nor anything to take hold of. There's nothing between you and hell but the air. Tis only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up from falling into hell. This is his sermon. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Or if you read Dante, hell is frozen and dark and cold and you're alone and there's no light, no stars. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite powerful. Absence of God, but just as self, you're just lost in the torture of your own self. That's the way Dante described, which I think is quite, quite a powerful picture. Some people talk about hell. It's like, no, don't talk about hell, you know, after you. Hell is here. Look at this world. This world's going to hell in a handbasket. This is hell. And we often hear people describe, you know, this person's gone through hell and back. Right? Still others say hell is where the fun is. John, you don't have to play it, but John was playing earlier on Highway to Hell. Don't, you don't play it, don't play it. I will, I will quote it. Well, but, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm talking about, because uh, for a lot of people, hell is where the fun is. And so, in the, uh, in the words of uh, Bon Scott, the late Bon Scott, Highway to Hell, right? Living easy, living free, season ticket on a one-way ride, asking nothing, leave me be, taking everything in my stride, don't need reason, don't need rhyme, ain't got nothing I'd rather do. Going down, party time, my friends are going to be there too. I'm on a highway to hell. I'm on a highway to hell. Okay. So hell, in some ways, has become a bit of a joke in our world today. One article said, uh, how can you take it seriously? Everybody talks about hell. Nobody really thinks it's real. In fact, statistically, the majority of North Americans, they believe in God, but they do not believe in hell. 1% of people think they might go to hell. So, when we hear Jonathan Edwards in these old sermons, we might think, okay, this is cute. This is the olden days where people used to believe in hell. What I want to do is just talk about... Because a lot of people struggle with hell because they say hell is incongruent with the love of God. Right? And the argument goes like this. God is powerful. God is good. Someone who is all-powerful would accomplish whatever he desires. Someone all-good would not wish anyone to suffer in such a place as hell. Therefore, hell's existence is incompatible with God being both good and powerful. So which is it? Is God not good or is he not powerful? Yes. Uh, what did the Bible teacher say? The early church actually taught three visions of hell. Mm -hmm. It was the eternal damnation, that was the church in Rome, that it's the universal view of most churches. It was the annihilation, that the sinners punished until they pay for their sins, that they just disappeared, their souls died. And it was the universalism that actually paid for their sins until a fully paid them went to hell. But apparently they all have, he believed they all have Bible, uh, you know, 
Yeah. Yeah, they all, but they all had, they all believed in hell. Uh, but different, different, and you're right, you're absolutely right. In the early church, if you look at the church fathers, they're, they're divided on that in terms of what hell actually looks like. And throughout history, there's, there's been some division, and often, actually, a, a lot of our understanding of what hell looks like is, is shaped probably as much by Dante as, as anything else. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a division. So let's, let's dive into this, because one of the issues is this logical issue, right? A loving God um, has to punish sin, or he wouldn't be loving. Okay, there we go. We'll, we'll dive into that. So, God is powerful. God is good. Someone all-powerful would accomplish whatever he desires. Someone all-good would not wish anyone to suffer in hell. So God is either not good or he's not powerful my son is actually taking philosophy right now and so he and i were talking about this recently because this is the argument that was put forward Amen. so here we go how do we respond to this let me just because there's consequences to this this is what what we're looking at we're looking at the implications i think our response to this is that if you are a christian if you are the follower of the story of all stories then you would say this jesus what Jesus says and what Jesus does matters, right? We're not deists, we're not theists, we're not atheists, we're Christian. And so Christ, what he says, matters. And Jesus actually teaches quite a bit about hell. He teaches more than Paul about hell. He mentions it 12 times. We read about hell in the apocalypse to the, his disciple John. Um, we read about books in the book of life, and we read about people being judged according to what they have done. We read that anyone whose name was not in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So what does the Bible say about hell? Well, hell seems to be, it seems to be, again, we're covering lots, and you might I have some questions afterwards, that's okay. But it seems to be different from Hades. We talk about Hades. Hades seems to be the equivalent of the Old Testament Sheol, which is a place for the unhappy dead. I'll leave that aside just for a moment. Hell in the New Testament means four things. One, hell is a destination. It's, it's an outcome of a trajectory of your life. That if your life continues to go in a certain direction, the end point is hell. So if you choose to live a life where your life is steadily moving away from one who is the author of life, then what you end up with is some kind of non-life, which the Bible describes as hell. Hell is sometimes described as fire. It's sometimes used language of a dump. It's where you dump and destroy what is bad. Hell is seen, along with death, as an enemy. Jesus refers to hell often as Gehenna, which is a place where an idolatrous sacrifice took place. It's an accursed valley. Hell stands for evil and darkness. And so Jesus talks about hell. And so our starting point is that if we take Jesus seriously, we can't ignore hell. Jesus is very serious when he talks about hell. 
But still, we're left with the question, how can a good God send anyone to hell? <laughs> you guys are down the road on this one already, on, online. It's an important question. Sorry? Yes, there's fault. Yes, so we'll leave that aside, though, because we're we're, we're we're making. We're... Yeah, possibly. I mean, there's 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 different approaches to that. But what I like to look at is how could a good God send anyone to hell? Um, this is important because it affects how we see the world, and it affects our role in it. And so our start, if we say, how can a good God send anyone to hell? We have to ask the question, what does it mean to be good? When we say God is good, we mean often that he's good. He's self-sacrificial, he's kind, slow to anger, forgiving, compassionate, and loving. But also part of his goodness is his holiness. His purity, his cleanness, his justice. All this is part of God's goodness. God's goodness, what does that mean? Well, it means that God is a God who will restore all things. He will make all things right in the end. And so you look around this world, and you don't have to be a Christian to realize that there's something wrong with this world. You look at Ottawa. You don't have to be a Christian to know there's something wrong with this world. This world is not the way it should be. Something is broken. And so part of God's goodness means that he will make all things right again. The fact that God will make all things right in the end is part of the story of all stories. And as Christians, we hold on to this, and this shapes our lives now. And could it be that the fact that God wants to make all things right in the end, that's why he cannot turn a blind eye to evil? See, the problem of hell is rooted in the goodness of God. Most people don't realize how good and how holy God is. It goes back to your point, Lisa, about the, um, you know, just the, 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 the sacredness of space, right? You could argue for God to be God, there needs to be hell. Okay, so what? Let me, let me make a case for this. Hell, the existence of hell, means that God takes your choices seriously. If hell is the destination, the outcome of people's choices, it is good because it means our freedom and our choices are taken seriously. I mean, you think about our culture today, what do we value more than anything else? Choice and autonomy, right? I'm in charge of my life, and I can choose whatever the heck I want to choose. Well, Jesus gives us the autonomy. He gives us the freedom to make choices. We have moral responsibility. And you read this in, you know, in the book of Revelation, that the books are open, and what we've done with our lives is made known. What we do with our lives matters. Now, this has implications now. If what we do with our lives matters then we need to be very careful in what we do with our lives. People desire dignity, and they want to have their decisions taken seriously. 
which is okay, but, but our choices have consequences. If there are no consequences, there's no judgment, what ramification? We can do whatever we want, which goes back to the point that you said earlier, Phoebe. We could do whatever we want. So if you don't want a hell, then how are you taking moral choice seriously? If there are no consequences to this life, then our choices really don't matter, and God's character doesn't matter. Now, some people say, well, I don't believe in God, so I can do whatever I want. But here's the thing. Even a person who doesn't believe in God Even an atheist would not say that what they do doesn't matter. Now, I was an atheist, and I, I would say, no, what we do matters. And as an atheist, you talk about what is good and what is right and what is wrong and all sorts of things. So even an atheist would say, look, what we do matters. And even if you're an atheist, would you not say to... Would you not say that if a person was a serial killer or an abuser or an embezzler and they get away with it, would you not say, ha, huh, that's not fair. That's not right. Would that not bug you? And if so, why? Why does it bug you? See, hell reveals that there's eternal consequences to the choices we make. And you think about this. This is, this is the argument I would make. It, so, Mike, if you spent your whole life and you didn't give a rip about God, you didn't care about Jesus, you cared about nothing, you lived your life freely how you wanted to live, and you paid no attention to God. You don't care about anything about God. But then if I said, okay, but after you die, God is going to force you to spend eternity with him. How would that be fair? You, you, you spent your whole life saying, I don't want to have anything to do with God. But when you die, God says, ha, too bad, you're still going to be with me. That wouldn't be honoring the choices that you've made in your life. If you want to live your own way, how is God's goodness revealed by coercing you into heaven, whether you like it or not? I think have, hell is good. I say that with trepidation. Because it reveals something, it confirms something deep within us that our hatred towards evil is correct. That when we see children abused, when we see the poor oppressed, when we hear about women being raped, when we hear about people being dehumanized through torture and war, our, we should get angry. This should not, this is not the way of the world. This is, people should not get away with this. And it teaches us that the evil that we see and experience in this world will not have the final word. The final word, will God will make everything right. Right? So I think hell actually helps us make sense of the world. And I say one, one, one more thing. And I turn the tables, and this is as Christians, we need to be, get better at doing this. For people who say, I don't believe in hell, I say, okay. What would you come up with? If you were God, what would you come up with? Well, I think everybody should go to heaven. Okay, so Stalin? 
um, Picton? Hitler, you're okay with that? Well, not, not really bad people. B not bad people. Okay, well, okay, where's the line? Where are you going to draw that line? Like really bad people, but not you, but really bad people. Because if you ask somebody, you say, oh, come up, with your, come up with the solution. Most people be like, oh, everybody's okay, everybody's good, there's goodness in everything. Okay, what about the Pictons of this world? What about the Mansons of the world? People get away with child abuse and they never got caught, but they lived their whole life and they died at a ripe old age. Should there not be any consequence to them? We know it's like, there should be something. Okay, where does that come from? And where do you draw the line? Script, scripture teaches us that there's only two kinds of people. There's sinners and saved sinners. There's sinners and saved sinners. All of us are mortally affected by sin. So we don't like the idea of hell because, well... <laughs> We think that God ought to simply forgive us. We're, we're good people. We're good people. Until we look really honestly at our hearts. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it is. And it also is, is recognizing the stuff that really lies in our hearts. Like there's, there's stuff, and, and this is what I find. I find that um, as Christians, as they get older, they have a deeper and deeper understanding of the sinfulness of their hearts. When I came to faith, when I became a Christian, if you said, David, are you a sinner? Be oh, yeah, I'm a sinner. I had no idea. I thought, honestly, I was a pretty good guy, but yeah, yeah, maybe a bit of a sinner. The older I get and the more I plumb the depths of my heart, it's, it's not good. But, but, what does it say in Amazing Grace? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Ah, look at the stuff inside my heart. But the same grace my fears relieved. And so the deeper we go into our lives and into the Christian life, I think the more we understand our sin. That's why I love praying these Puritan prayers, because if anybody understood the sinfulness of the heart these Puritans did, but they also in the same breath understood the grace of God. And the more we understand our hearts, that but for the grace of God, I'm in the same place, the more we cling to the cross. And that's why my man, John Barrage, the guy I did my dissertation on, said, whatever you do in the Christian life, do whatever you want, but keep one hand on the cross. <laughs> don't, don't go away from the cross, which is the point, right? And so as Christians, what should our posture be with this view of hell? I think our posture needs to be, look, we're in this together. I'm not saying, you're going to go to hell in a handbasket unless you repent and become holy like me. No. Sorry, I'm always offending Americans. It just works well. Um, but here's the thing. We have to um, recognize that we're, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. 
And if you look at our hearts, our hearts are a mess. They are such a mess. And if you don't think your heart is a mess, you need to look deeper. Because that sin runs really, really deep. And so our posture with other people, this is the implications, is that we tell people, we're in this together. I'm a sinner saved by grace. You need this grace. I grabbed onto the life preserver. You need to grab onto the life preserver, right? And we never delight in hell. Never delight in hell. And we have a mission. And so I think the reality of there's consequences to our lives needs to shape how we live our lives. And I think we need to be open and talk, talk about these things. And Sharon, you quoted uh, C.T. Studd uh, last semester. I love this line. Some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I love that line. And so our job as Christians is to, is to point people to the truth of Jesus. And that our, our decisions matter and encourage people to recognize that our, our decisions matter. And all the people always come up to me and they'll say, well, what about Grandma? She was a pretty good person. Now, she never probably heard about Jesus, but she, oh, she was such a gem. And here's the thing. What I know is that the God we worship is a God who will do what is right. He's loving and he's just, and he will do what is right. And so we entrust all the what ifs what about those who've never heard what about all this sort of we entrust those to god who will judge justly but i always have people come up to me and say well dave what about those you know who are like you know some village in africa and i'm like well then they probably heard of jesus because there are more christians in africa than there are here <laughs> i'm like oh okay and i say oh so you mean westwood plateau that's what you're getting at <laughs> yes so what about those who've never heard who live in westwood plateau Okay, that's a great question, and there's a lot of different thoughts on this. But here's the point. For you to ask that question, you have to have heard. So what are you going to do in response to Jesus? And then we'll talk about these hypothetical things. I think this is really important, because it does have implications. It means what we do with our lives, how we live our lives, matter. There's, there's consequence. You live your life, what you see is what you get then why, why do anything? Why, why live a moral life? Our moral choices don't matter. Morality doesn't really exist. You'd be hard-pressed to make a case. Yeah. Is that just Patty and then I'll do Simi? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, very good. Good. Well, you're, I mean, that's a great question. So, because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, then why, what's the big deal? Yeah, so we can carry on in our sin, yeah. Well, Paul actually brings up that very same question. It's a, it's a good question. The reality is, is because of our sin, something needed to be done. And that is why the cross is so important, is that we cannot rescue ourselves Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves because of his great love for us. And so we have been rescued through faith in Jesus. His righteousness is imputed upon us. We are set free. We are declared righteous because of what he's done. And now we live in response to that. But here's the thing. The Christian life is never a system. 
It's never a system. So it's not like, if I do this, then I get to do this. And we're not the first people that Paul, in the first century, people were doing this. They're like, ha, so if Jesus died for my sins, I can do whatever I want because it's all covered. And Paul says, that's not, because it's a relationship. It's a relationship. And the other thing is that as we grow in our Christ-likeness, as we follow Jesus, we will sin less. But as we follow Jesus, we become more human and we flourish. And so it's not just a matter, I believe in Jesus so I don't go to hell. I believe in Jesus so I can become fully human and, and, and flourish as a human being. But you're right, though, in the sense that when I mess up and I continue to sin, and the older I get, I see how much sin is in my heart. My starting point isn't, woe is me. My starting point is, I come before the throne of grace, say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Knowing because of Jesus, I get forgiven. I am forgiven. So you're right, but that's an, it's an impetus for us to, for, to have a deeper walk with him. This is really important. Yeah. Good. That's such a good question. I'm glad you brought that up. Okay, so we got like um, three minutes to talk about purgatory. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I have that on your notes, but then I just have saying, yeah, we're going to have to talk about this some other time. Join my Dante book club if you want to hear about purgatory. Though we're almost out of purgatory. We're almost into paradise next week. Yeah. As of Monday, we're in paradise. All right. So we'll talk about heaven. Now, I know this is not going to answer your questions, but you need to know I do teach a class on this. I'm thinking about doing a class on heaven, hell, and everything in between again. So. Before you transition to heaven, I think since we're yeah yeah that's so hell is not ruled by saying that's that's a good that's a great observation and again i i shouldn't keep coming back to dante but i love in dante because because the, the devil is frozen. He's, 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 he's entombed in ice, and he's just like this. And Dante and Virgil, they actually walk along his shoulder around his head and around and start making their way back up. It's quite funny in some ways, but it's also a picture of his utter defeat that he's been cast in. So that's, that's good. Now, there's lots of questions about... Oh, sorry, Sumi, you were going to ask a question. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so what about people who live really, really good lives? I remember what Tim Keller said. Tim Keller once said that you should not be surprised if people other than Christians live better lives than Christians. And he says that makes sense because in most religious frameworks, you need to do as many good things as possible in order to tip the balance to get into heaven. Well, these people, they do good works. Yeah, they do. And, and it makes sense. 
But the problem is, as I say, the difference between so many religions and different thoughts in our world and Christianity is they're spelled differently. You've heard me say this before. Religion, a lot of the religions in the world are is spelled D-O. What do I need to do in order to be right with God? And when have I done enough? When has the scale tipped in my favor? And what happens when I screw up? Does this tail, the scale tip backwards? Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. It's what Jesus has done because we could never do enough. And our, the impetus or the catalyst for our good works is not to get to God, but it is a heart of gratefulness in response to what he's done. And there's a world of difference because a lot of religions where you do a lot of good things, there's a desire to say, okay, maybe this will be enough. There's an anxiety with it. Where in Christianity, at least how it ought to be, is there's a freedom to it. Because I know no matter what I do, I can approach the throne of grace and that, um, that Jesus has paid it all. And I live in response to that. And so there's a lightness to the Christian faith to the Christian life that you don't actually see, I don't think, in some of these other world views. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you do the do versus done. I think that's an important thing. Because how do you know you've done enough good things that God's finally happy with you? Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, and that and that's that's key. So, and that goes back to the work of the Holy Spirit changing us from the inside out. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah. Absolutely. Now I'm noticing the time. So, oh man, I I knew I was ambitious in this one. I knew I was ambitious. You know what I like to do rather than rush our way through heaven. Uh, maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll um, touch on this at the beginning of next class, and then we'll dive into kind of, what I'd like to do in next class is I want to look at how we got to now. Um, we look at our world and, we, and we're trying to make sense of the world. We're trying to interpret the world. We look at Ottawa and the stuff that's going on in Ottawa. We look at stuff that's going on in Ukraine. We see stuff going on around the world. And we, we're trying to make sense of it. And I, part of the ways we make sense of it is we need to understand what are some, because ideas have consequences, what are some of the ideas throughout history that have brought us to the place where we're at today? Because if you understand that, then you'll understand some of the worldviews behind this. And you'll also see how the Christian worldview stands in, in, in contradistinction to this. So that's what we're going to do next week. It's going to be a whirlwind because we're going to cover lots. But hey, you get your money's worth, right? There's, there, there's, there's no filler, right? Um, I don't like filler. Uh, so is that okay? We'll, do, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look at heaven. I don't want to rush that in, in like five minutes. That would be not right. So let me, uh, I'm going to close our time here. I'm just going to press stop. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. 
You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.